Hello and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden, the monthly magazine for RHS members. This podcast is all about the stories behind the stories that we cover. It's a chance to dig a little deeper into the plants and gardening issues that interest and inspire us. And to hear directly from those steeped in gardening expertise, whether it be plants people, designers, specialist nurseries or horticultural legends. All gardening life, as they say, is here. First up today, pears. When asked to name pear varieties, I, like many people, can maybe do Concord or Conference, whereas when it comes to apples, there's at least half a dozen names that trip off the tongue. But pears actually have a long and fruitful history in the British Isles, and there are, in fact, many varieties specific to different areas of the UK. In this month's magazine, Gerry Edwards, who's chair of the RHS Fruit Committee, assesses the state of the nation's pears. I spoke to him about why he thinks this is a perfect British fruit. Sorry about that. Jerry, you've written the second of two articles for us, looking at different selections of heritage fruit from across the British Isles, which ones either hail or grow well in our different regions. The first article of yours looked at apples, which we published in September 2018. But this month, it's all about pears. So I need to ask you a really simple question. Why do you love pears so much? The answer to that simply is they're fascinating fruits. When I started fruit growing, very few people grew pears My grandfather was a big fruit grower, but he grew just a couple of varieties of pear. So I spent some time researching pears and thought, why aren't they being grown so well? I looked at the history of them and they were considered exotic, luscious, unusual. And most of the pears in this country were imported for some reason. Pears went through the history of um, pear mania, very much like julep mania. Um, in Holland many, many centuries ago. And at one time, pears were the fruit everybody wanted to grow in this country. But for some reason, that interest disappeared and it became all about apples and grapes. And so now I've started growing a lot of pears to prove how easy they are to grow and why they're worth growing. And, and I suppose in a way, this is the beauty of the article, both this on pears and also the one on apples, which is all about the heritage, because there are some brilliant names, aren't there, in the, in the, in the pear world? Black Worcester, Bishop's Thumb, Colmar Dete, Laxton's Vixter. There's some really evocative names going on, and I, I guess that harks back to the heritage of them. Oh, I think it's very, very important. A lot, a lot of um, fruits, apples and pears, were bred by head gardeners, and they were given their master's name usually. Sometimes the master allowed the head gardener to have their name. Just sometimes they were found wild and people thought of a weird name for it. We've got um, the pear called swan's egg because it resembles a swan's egg. We've got green slipper, uh, a possible Yorkshire pear. <laughs> no idea quite where it's called green slipper. We've got <laughs> these weird and wonderful names and there's a lovely pears coming up for renaming and called hen's turds. So yes, we have all these quite interesting evocative names uh, which have appeared around the country. Lovely. And and how many stories there are to say about them. But it's um, probably fair to say, isn't it, the pears don't get as much coverage or notoriety as apples. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think mainly because they're considered hard to grow. They're still considered to be a luxury fruit, an exotic fruit, which are probably best grown in France or Belgium. Doyenne du Commis is probably the finest pear in the world. It's a French pear. And we can grow it in this country, but the the warmth, the extra warmth makes it good. However, what people don't realise is the two most popular pears in the world. 
were both developed in this country. Conference, which is one of the most best-selling pairs in the world, grown in most continents, was developed by Laxons in this country and named after the 1885 Pair Conference, hosted by the Royal Horticultural Society. And the famous canning pair, Bartlett's, is in fact Williams Boncretton, which was found in this country in Aldermaston. So we can grow good pears in this country, but people don't realise we can. So in your experience, Jerry, what pears have you grown or do you carry on growing? And why did you choose them? Well, I grow about 50 varieties of pear at the present wow. time. and um, How much space do you have in your garden? Well, I have an acre and I grow 300 fruit trees, of which about 250 are apples or 50 are pears. I want to try growing some of the historical pears. And I mean, I grow conference and I grow concord, obviously, but there's berry hardy, berry superfemme. Pitmaston Duchess, some of these evocative pears which will grow well in this country. And if you go through many nurserymen's lists nowadays, you will find a whole range of pears. And frankly, I, I just like going through some of the pears and trying them out. Having accepted there are certain pears which will grow well in certain places, some will survive and some won't survive. It's just fun growing pears. And when you see the final fruit, they're very interesting, whereas apples generally look like apples, and that's not a quip, but it's true. Pears come out in all shapes and sizes. Some are really small and round, some are really long indicators, some are fat and short. And it's quite interesting seeing the whole range of pear fruits. So in your expert opinion, Jerry, what makes a good garden pear? What should people think about in terms of their location or their climate or their soil? I think the first thing to consider is the climate. Pears do flower a little earlier than than apples, but a little bit later than cherries and plums. And in, in colder areas where there might be a windy situation or a frost pocket, it is quite possible that blossoms will not get pollinated or be frosted off. So that's in the very much colder areas. But there are some pears which are known for being quite hardy. And I think what my article tried to show was there are certain pears suitable for most locations, as long as they're not overexposed. So I think it's quite important, as with apples, to try and choose pears which are known to grow well in your part of the country. There's no point in growing something like Duane Comis, which needs longer sunny days in, in Scotland. Some pears will do better in wetter conditions, some in cooler conditions. So sort out what pears are grown in your area and copy them. It's always worth experimenting with a few others, but just don't have an expectation until you try growing them. I think apples you get away with pears perhaps are just a little bit harder. So the other thing that um, some people worry about is about the size of their fruit trees. What's your advice on size for pears and what, are there certain rootstocks are, that are best for them? There are. The, the, the old famous saying, you grow pears for your heirs, previously, and until about the 40s, people grew pears on their own rootstocks, and they would grow. Pear rootstock would grow very high, and you could plant a pear tree in its own roots, could go to 20, 30 feet before producing flowers. So we do now have some dwarfing rootstocks suitable for pears, and those dwarfing rootstocks are quince A and quince C. Either will do, some parts of the world you'll get quince A, some quince C. Using those dwarf rootstock, it's possible to grow pear trees, which will stay to the height you want them to. Um, so, so, you, so what would a dwarf rootstock grow to? What sort of size, roughly? It, depending on the way you manage them, whether they're grown as corn, as espaliers, or bush trees, you can control them to a height of seven or eight feet by proper and judicious pruning people shouldn't be scared if they're thinking about selecting a pair because they fall in love with your prose and the history and the, the legacy of these pair names that people shouldn't be put off from growing them as long as they think about a their location and b the rootstock that they're growing them on 
pears are just as easy to grow as apples in the right situations and people should certainly try them. There may not be as many varieties around to choose from but well worth experimenting with because what you get at the end of the day is something fairly unique and something um, we can all learn to love. I encourage anyone to try growing pears rather than have 10 apple trees and one pear tree. How about having five pear trees and five apple trees? Lovely, Joe. Well, I, I think we can all absolutely hear your sincere enthusiasm for them. So in a sentence, what's your one bit of advice for anyone thinking about growing a pear tree? Most important is to realise the pears will ripen fairly quickly. You can't leave pears on the tree and let them ripen on the tree because by the time they ripen on the tree, they'll be off. Pick pears early, try and store them in a cool place and eat them. Don't try and keep them and you'll have the most luscious fruit you've ever had in your life. Jerry Edwards, fruit specialist. Many thanks indeed. Thank you, Chris. You can read Jerry's fascinating article about regional British pears and which varieties, ancient to modern, grow best in the different parts of the UK in the November issue of The Garden. If you're an RHS member, you'll know that the magazine is delivered to your door free every month. And if you're not a member, why not? You get unlimited free entry to all four RHS gardens, along with priority booking and discounted entry to RHS flower shows. And these are just some of the benefits of joining. For more information, go to our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. And now back to the office. As editor, I'm currently making the final tweaks and changes to the November issue. And as ever, I hope there's plenty of information and inspiration for everyone who reads it. One of the key areas we're looking at this month is practical advice. Some people might think that you put the garden to bed in September, October, and it magically wakes up in the spring. But oh no, there's still stuff to be doing, especially collecting leaves. And so there's a piece all about collecting autumn leaves and what to do with it. Leaf mould is a free, really valuable and versatile product that you get when you collect the leaves, leave them in a heap or in a bag over winter, and then in a few months' time you'll be getting this rich, precious material that can add and benefit to your soil. One of the key plant features this month is by Deputy Editor Phil Clayton, and he's looking at gold foliage plants. Now, this might sound a little bit rare or a little bit of a, a bit of a niche within a niche, but actually, the more you look, the more you see in terms of these plants, which might be yellow, they might be gold, they might be very light green. And he's brought a selection together, and he's put it together for one of our photographic plates, where we have the comparison of all the different plants, leaves, and textures. Now, the interesting thing for me is when I've been doing these plates in the past, what you see with the human eye can sometimes look quite different under the photographic lens and this plate is one of those examples because actually some of the plants you might think oh my gosh is that actually green is it more yellow or is that pure gold what Phil's feature does is brings those plants to life and actually shows what's on the plate can work as special gold leaf plants We've also got a feature all about our hero garden. Every month we celebrate one garden with beautiful photography and some really top-class writing. And this month we're looking at Berry Court. And the reason why it's special is not only is it a beautiful autumn and winter garden, but it's had two leading garden designers design it over the years. Pete Aldolph and Christopher Bradley Hole. There's not many gardens that can claim that sort of fame, but it's a beautiful piece, beautifully written, and the photographs are splendid and just makes you understand why these designers are top-class people. 
And also what we mustn't forget this month is some of our columnists. We've got some of the best writers in the industry from Roy Lancaster, Leoline Dirtz, who normally makes me either laugh or cry when I read her work, and also John Grimshaw, the great plantsman. So we've got something for everyone. Now, bamboo. A much-loved, graceful evergreen for some, an invasive, unstoppable nightmare for others, this varied grass deeply divides opinion. In November's magazine, bamboo specialist Chris Stapleton writes a fascinating profile of this plant, complete with a stunning colour plate of some of the diverse varieties available. And we not only show some of the winter stem, but also some of the summer foliage too. In our Peterborough offices, garden writer Melissa Mabbott and deputy editor Phil Clayton discuss the merits and potential problems of this boldest of all grasses. So I want to be persuaded into why I should grow one. I think a lot of people are a little bit afraid of growing bamboos because they have a reputation for being invasive and rampant, maybe popping up in your neighbour's next door garden and causing a bit of a neighbourly dispute. But uh, is that the case? It can be the case. There's bamboos and there's bamboos, and it's also very much down to the site conditions. So the article that we've got in the Garden magazine Mm. mainly profiles bamboos that have got good stem colour. And of those that we show on the plate, they are mostly bamboos that are either clump forming or running bamboos that tend not to get too rampant in most situations. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, so when we think about bamboos, you normally think about the clump-forming ones being the well-behaved ones and then those running ones being the ones that are potentially invasive. But you're saying that actually there are some running ones that are actually potentially not too invasive and easier to grow? Or? Yeah, it's all it's degrees of invasiveness, really, <laughs> or how they run. So some philostachys, a lot of the philostachys are not actually clump-forming. They're actually the running bamboos. Mm. And they do run particularly in wetter parts of the country Ah. and milder parts of the country. If you live somewhere fairly uh, dry and cold or exposed, they tend to remain reasonably tight clumps, certainly for a good while anyway. So it's more actually about the conditions they're grown in than than anything else. Yeah, a great example actually is one I have. It's Philostachys holocryza, which has got these beautiful golden cones. Mm. And I had a plant of it in my garden in Surrey years ago, before I moved up to Peterborough. And in that garden, it stayed as a fairly well-behaved clump. That's because that part of the garden was fairly dry and fairly open. I moved to Peterborough, which, OK, is a dry part of the country, but I planted it at the bottom of my garden. Mm. It's very sheltered, Which is it? very yeah, sheltered by a wall. Well. And yeah. also, it gets the leaky overflow from my outhouse. Oh. And the water, at times, is pours down there. And, of course, it's gone mental. <laughs> uh, it's all over the place. It's it three times massive, the height it? that it was before. <laughs> it's quite it, thick I love as it. well, isn't they're it? Beautiful. Great. Yeah, they're yeah. About, more than an inch across. I'm, yeah. I'm really pleased with it. Mm. But it's in a part of the garden where it's running mm. habit doesn't bother me particularly. What do you do? Do you, do you have to contain it? Yeah, just let... yeah every year I'll, 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 I'll just chop it back. Okay. Uh, so I cut down the culms and then I have to excavate down to where the rhizome is and I'll saw it off with a little yeah. handsaw. So, so actually, it's not as long as you're willing to keep on top of it on an annual basis, it's actually not too much of a problem. It is just about making sure that you... Not, that one I don't find is, is too much of a problem. And of course, mm. it's restrained on two sides by these walls, so oh, it, can okay. only, it can only really spread in two, two directions. So yeah. it could be a problem 
I would if have you said, just left it. If you just left yeah. it, definitely. Yeah, okay. yeah. There's mm. others which are much worse. Yeah. Far, far worse. There's another one which I grow because I, I love it uh, called Chimno Bamboosa Timidicinoda. So it's a great a tongue a twister of a name. But it's got these amazing uh, stems which have got the nodes swollen. They stick out like discs almost in the middle of the stem. And this beautiful feathery foliage. And it's a lovely thing mm. when it grows well. But, my goodness, it spreads. Uh, uh, and so I have to be very careful of that and restrain it. So that's yeah. a bit of a naughty one. And some of those things, sassa and sassella, they're quite notorious for spreading Could quite Could you grow quickly. them in containers instead? Or are they not really suitable for container growing? I wouldn't bother. A bit dry? I wouldn't bother. I just don't think they'd look very good for very long. Yeah. They'll probably be okay for a little while if you look after them, but it, mm. within a few years they'll They're they'll go round and round and round yeah, in yeah, the yeah. container, they and they like just it, do they? Don't, and yeah. you have to keep them really well watered to yeah. keep them going. So I know a lot of people are a bit nervous about growing bamboos because they can be a bit invasive, but in my garden it's actually very exposed, very dry, and I'd like to grow a bamboo, but I haven't really ever had any success with them, even because it is just the conditions aren't great, especially because it's very windy and exposed. But is there actually anything that I could go for, and would it work if I chose one of the rampant ones, stuck it in this garden, and it would actually stay contained because the conditions aren't very good? Would that work? It's hard to say, really. Um, <laughs> they don't like exposed conditions. They yeah. just don't. The leaves never look very mm. nice. They never grow very lushly. You're always going to have something that looks like it's fighting the elements, they get I, I, burned, I, I don't think. They don't they? A bit like it aces. You might be all right with a smaller, mm. a shorter-growing one, mm. maybe one of the smaller Fargesias or something like that, that you can put in a sheltered corner mm. and keep it reasonably moist and give it some protection from the, the worst of the elements oh. but i i wouldn't recommend it honestly oh, there's probably I'd... other things that you can grow that will do much better oh i thought i'd come up with a solution i thought right i'll just plant a really really invasive one and that'll be okay mm. <laughs> in, a, in a sheltered corner that might be a sol- good yeah. solution if it was just dry i'd say yes but yeah. i think with no, the wind windy, as well yeah, that's, that's I'm not the sh- killer yeah. I, I, you're never going to get it to look yeah. that, that yeah. lovely because there are some beauties mm. i've got i think i don't know how many i've got in my garden i've got quite a few even though my garden's not that big so i've got a berinda as well one of these blue blue stemmed ones yeah berinda papyrifera which is beautiful i find it of all the ones that i grow to be one of the most sensitive to lack of moisture so it it, it grows quite well but if we get a dry spell the new stems that it's just sent up will abort very very quickly and die off another which i have it's my favorite bamboo it might be in my top 10, if I can have top 10 plants, it might be within that. And it's a beautifully dainty bamboo called Himalaya Calamus falconeri. This is a true clump former Mm. and it has long, tall, very graceful stems or culms covered with these little green leaves that shiver in the slightest breeze. And it arches over, it's a beautiful sort of fountainous shape, it arches Mm. over It's a wonderful thing. It is quite tender, Mm. uh, although we're in Peterborough and I've never lost it. Sometimes it's been defoliated in Mm. a cold winter, but it always comes back. Mm. I've never had a great deal of problem with it. It's one I really recommend. It's one you don't see very often. I mean, if people are really determined to grow one in a container... Are there any species we could recommend? Well, I would always go with a shorter one, if I'm honest, because the tall, they can get very tall, Mm. and in a pot they are much more likely to dry out. So if your pot dries out and then it's windy, the thing falls over and you're constantly standing it up. Mm. And the the older and more established it gets, the more water it needs. So you're always fighting this battle, trying to give it enough water, and they will take an awful lot of water. So you might decide that you want to put a Felistachus in a pot 
for two or three years and then plant it out. I wouldn't. Yeah. I would see it as a medium-term proposition for something yeah. in a container rather than something that you're going to leave there for five, six, seven or eight years. It just is not going to be as happy as it is in the garden. Yeah. That said, so I've got a trouble. Again, I don't know exactly which one it is, but it's a Fargesia, definitely. It's one of these shorter ones that you see regularly in garden centres, about three feet high. I've got that in a trough. It's been in a trough for five or six years it's perfectly happy mm, it hasn't okay. grown as much as it would do in the yeah. garden but it Which it's might a, be a good thing it's a nice yeah, yeah but yeah. it's a nice thing so i would say go with a shorter one yeah. go with a large container go with a soil-based compost yeah. and be prepared to keep watering it oh, you could even set up an irrigation system that would probably be the best way to do it wouldn't it yes. like drip, drip feeding irrigation so you yeah, definitely yeah. won't forget mm-hmm. or grow it at the edge of a pond in a container something like that so mm. it was getting you know you could sort of sink the container into the into the side the trouble is that the, the if it's a if it's a semi-invasive one or a running one it's going to grow out the bottom oh, will it? <laughs> they also you know they get so they can get so um pot bound that if it's a terracotta pot they can crack the pot open uh, i've seen that happen <laughs> sort before of away looking yeah. for the soil and like a trip you'll see that if they're in pot, plastic pots for any length of time the plastic pot distorts and gets sort of yeah. out of shape because there's so much root they activity like going on yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. so yeah so even if you're trying to um contain one in the ground you have to dig down about four feet with a trench and line that to stop it breaking out stop the rumble when it's breaking uh, out uh, and you can't use a butyl sure. liner because they'll get through they'll the get through that no it has to be has a to be, solid a really yeah and you have to glue the edges yeah. of any kind of root barrier yeah. that you're using to be absolutely sure but to be honest uh, you can be slightly less stringent than that and you will reduce its spread hugely but you've just got to catch yeah Yeah. exactly you've got to keep you'll have to keep an eye on it it'll still probably escape yeah but but not slowly than it would have done so you can just keep it in check that's that's absolutely true yeah the annoying things about bamboos actually i find are the, the foliage drop Mm. Uh, so, there's so what always, time of year does it drop its foliage? Well, it's an evergreen, isn't it? They are, are evergreens, but the leaves drop off. I find it particularly bad in the spring. There's often quite a lot yeah. of leaf fall. So you get a lot of sort of detritus covering the uh, anything yeah. that you're growing around the bottom. That's the same for many evergreens, isn't it? It's sort true, it's true, but there's so though, much yeah. leaf on bamboo that it can be a problem. Mm. And the other thing is what to grow underneath because it's tends to be dry there yeah. it tends to be quite rooty mm. you need really tough stuff that's mm. going to grow around the base of your bamboo don't expect it to grow through the mm. bamboo oh no uh, the bamboo will grow through what mm. you're growing rather than the other way around but you, you need tough things ivies are quite good uh, i if you can plant several ivies and trip trim them you can get a perfect sort of pool of green underneath mm. the bamboo that's a good that's a good one that i've been trying at home i think the um the article recommends the black mondo grass oh yes yes so that's a good one or even yes. just i think what looks best is actually just a stone mulch because yes. then that really shows off the, shows um, the, the stems so that and you really must good. cut off those lower yes. those lower branches yeah, to show that off makes the stems really that makes difference. it makes so much difference yeah. it makes quite an ordinary looking plant into something quite spectacular yeah yeah sure And finally, it's been incredibly pleasing to see how, in the recent years, the benefits of gardens and gardening to health and well-being have gradually been acknowledged by the mainstream media and healthcare professionals alike. It's fabulous to see the proliferation of projects, large and small, designed to give people access to plants and green spaces. 
And I think so many of us can relate to this subject of well-being. I remember when I was 16, I was suffering from ME for a couple of years and actually went part-time at school. So I was doing my A-levels in half the amount of time. But when I wasn't at school, I'd be sitting in my parents' garden in Berkshire and I'd be sitting there around the trees, looking at the seasons come and go, the wildlife, the way the plants change. And it was so restorative and so important to me and was so formative in those early years that really cemented my connection and love of plants and landscape but I know that it really did help my mind uh, balance out any stresses and actually slowed me down and, and I'm pretty sure even though I'm no scientist helped um, in my road to recovery. So it's brilliant to see that more and more people are picking up on this important element of the link between gardening and mental health. Tim Kendall is NHS England's National Clinical Director for Mental Health and he's written a fascinating and really important article this month about why he believes gardening should complement traditional medical care and also the reasons why we should all be so supportive of social prescribing. We spoke to him in the RHS Feel Good Garden at last year's Chelsea Flower Show about the ongoing collaboration between the RHS and the National Health Service and why gardening is so important and does you so much good. We were approached by the Royal Horticultural Society and asked if we would start a collaboration, looking at the, the idea that Matt Keithley might be able to design a garden that could be given to a mental health trust. So we set up a competition and we asked all the trusts, there's about 54 trusts in England, and we asked them all if they'd put in applications to look at how they would use a garden both in terms of enriching the space for patients and carers to come to, but also how they'd use it to stimulate interest in gardening and the use of gardens across their trust. And pleased to say we've given it to Camden and Islington Mental Health Trust. So after this will all be lifted and taken off up to northwest London. So fantastic. I think there's been uh, quite a lot of interest, certainly in the NHS, about different types of exercise and different activities that ordinarily we'd just think of as pleasurable and how they might actually help your mental health. And at the same time, RHS has got some research going, looking at gardens and gardening and the use of sort of natural spaces for the same purposes, to look at well-being. The two sides have come together and it's just created this very exciting opportunity. Matt has agreed to give advice to trusts who want to do more of this. I think there's a willingness to do that over the coming year. We've now agreed that we're going to repeat this next year and have another competition uh, and the year after. So we've got three years of the RHS and the NHS collaborating. So I think this is just the seeds of something really unusual and it's going to give a, a, a much bigger emphasis to us helping people with mental health problems do things that are very ordinary and very pleasurable which we also know is going to do them do them good we already know and we've known for some years that physical exercise is really good for depression and it looks now that it's probably good for other mental health problems anxiety and probably also for more severe problems like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Now, we know that physical exercise does improve your mental health, no doubt. But I think gardening 
and you think of the context, you know, so you've got all the sort of natural elements and you've got the colours and you've got the smells and the aromas and the breeze and so on. I mean, what better context to do your exercise? So just in that sense, I think gardening is a good thing. But I think probably more than that is that there is a role for what now is called therapeutic gardening. And I think that's becoming more common across England. So I see this as just a beginning. I've got patients of mine who are all homeless. Now we get them into going for walking groups out in the Peak District. We get them into gardening groups in the botanical gardens. And you know, by all accounts, they really enjoy this stuff. I mean, it's great. So it's not just the physical exercise, it's also the experience. You know, when someone's depressed, most people think they're miserable. They're not, in fact. It's an absence of good feeling, and it's, it's a feeling of n not having life in you. Now, I think when you come into a space like this, and you spend time in it, and you see things grow, and you, you get a sense of life being around you, that, I think, is in itself healing for people with those sorts of problems. Well... That's all we've got time for in today's podcast. We'll be back with more sounds from the garden next month. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.